it's just it's funny when folks are like this is the most fun I've had in my life, and the like, second to getting married, right? Like, like considering all the women he dated in wrestling, like, oh, that's just gonna fly. There's no way <laughs> laying on the ground getting And just like that, welcome to the Bit Players Bits Per Second Podcast. I'm Jared. I'm Lobo. I'm Sam. <laughs> 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 and our very special guest, Vlad, is here today. Uh, Vlad is a bit player, and he's come to enlighten us about his life and his incredible skill at mime today. Welcome, Vlad. Thank you for having me. So, um, as we always start off every week with uh, an amazing topic, what's our first topic today, Tim? The first topic I have, like, uh, like often, I like to talk about things I don't know a lot about. Uh, Elon Musk is trying to raise funds... For a, a neural lace that someone can put on their head to let the brain interact with with artificial intelligence, so like a direct interface between the brain and computers, rather than using hand inputs or optical inputs or anything like so that. So like brain tooth, brain tooth. Yeah, exactly like brain tooth. Yeah. And uh, just maybe because I don't know a ton about it yet, but just knowing about it in a vague sense just opens my mind up to all the the possibilities of. of uh, of having something like that. Coming to the iPhone 8, you don't even need to touch it. You just think it. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. People are going to be so pissed off when they get rid of that screen. Oh, it's exactly. not going to matter. No screen at all. It's be little squares. It's just square. You think about it. You just live it. You immediately think about it. But then we've reached that full um, point, like in Back to the Part- Future Part 2, where they said, oh, we have to use your hands? That's like a baby's toy. Hmm. So now... But the irony is it'll be that eventually no one will use their hands, so everyone's hands will shrivel up like little baby arms. So it'll be a baby's toy that turns their arms into baby arms. Oh my god, then we'll or, look like the people from Wally. Yeah. Yeah, or, little baby arms, just gigantic bellies. It'll be bellies with baby arms coming out of the sides. God. Or we'll get, like, because we don't have to stop to use our hands to do phone stuff or computer stuff, that we will, like, start doing other things with them. But we're not driving cars either. Yeah. Well, we'll be reading. I mean, that really bothers me. I don't like the non. I don't like the self-driving cars. Oh, I'm on the side with you. I, I can't love wait. Them. Really, dude? It's the fun of riding a bus just with nobody else. If I like that you think riding a bus is fun. It totally is. Yeah, I think riding a bus. Is All fun. the downsides of riding a bus have nothing to do with the bus. Yeah, have to do with the other people that might be on the bus. Yeah, and the bus itself. How so? Like stopping for sometimes the bus is really hot. Well, cars have to do that too. It's the, if you have a shitty driver, like a shitty bus driver. Well, that's why I want a robot bus driver. So are there going to be gauges, like grades of robot drivers? So could you get, it's like there's like a high octane one? <laughs> I don't think so. Because I like to think once it's ubiquitous, you'll have the situation where all of them are talking to each other at the same time. So every move will be coordinated. Now you said that and I thought you were talking about like grading the, the skill of driving based on each car. Like for like, for the cheaper model, you have like a, a rated D driver. Well, that's what I'm saying. So he's not like a great driver. He cuts some people off, but yeah, he's so not like, perfect. For like a Kia, you have like <laughs> one that drives like a Meme. <laughs> and then for like uh, a Maserati, you have like a Jeff Gordon. You have like a really pro. You can have like a Toyota that drives like a Rhode Islander, so it just always cuts you off and drives in the left lane. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that's perfectly fine. Doesn't stop at stop signs. Nope. The, it just rolls through. The Escalade model will just like go into the breakdown lane to pass people with no problem. <laughs> we'll automatically blare like loud music down your street. Like has a tinted window, even if it doesn't matter. And uses a camera anyway. Still gets pulled over. Robot car getting pulled <laughs> over for having a tinted window. 
and the hydraulics. Mm. Can you get the hydraulics version too with like the tassels on the window? Every car, car, every car has the John Cena theme song. Yeah, that's right. That's the new horn. Yeah. <laughs> so do you, so that's another question. Like, do, do if you had the the self driving car, do you even have a horn? I mean, there is a manual override, right? There yeah. would be now, in theory. You totally should. You should always still have a manual override. But I think to a certain point, if every car on the road is automatic, then the highway can be going 150 miles an hour. And the manual override is not going to be that great because people can't really handle vehicles at that speed. Not the average driver. Not everyone's big time Mike Belanger. No, that that is true. Right? That guy. As we learned from the live episode. Yeah. But I think then that, that I think for it to go 150, then you have to rehaul, rehaul everything. Like you have to redesign roads. And you have to get them all fixed up for for robot cars. Sure, sure, I think so. But I think that I think I'm talking about more of an end game because I think there's going to be an in between window where there's. Driverless cars mm. al- along with people driving as well. And what does that, that do the insurance industry? It, it, it'll it'll make it much smaller because it'll, the, the incidence of accidents will go down incredibly. And they've already shown. I mean, they still all need to be insured. I assume you should. I would think so. You should be. You you will have to just because of like accidents. Yeah, like you know, there's going to be problems with your computer. There's going to be problems with your robot. I mean, that's the thing. Like, my phone, like, periodically, I have to, like, restart it because it just, like, hmm. stops. Yeah. Like, working. Like, I mean, that's what's going to happen with a driverless car, too. Like, periodically, it'll just be like, I don't want to work today. Yeah. And it'll, like, shit out. And then you're in a situation where yeah. you have a car, you're sitting in the highway. Like, what if it decides it's going to shit out when you're, like, Well, that's the, going that's the point of, of all of these things communicating is that if one of them fails, the other ones are aware of that immediately and have to compensate for it. So once, so your car might fail, but then the cars around it that are working still will know that that car failed. See, I don't trust technology right now because ESPN, like first They're, day of the NFL season, yeah. like, fucking fantasy went down. Yeah, it did. Like, like if I can't like, trust ESPN fantasy football, as soon it's because you're not using Yahoo, that's your problem. Well, well I didn't choose the league. I prefer you, Yahoo. Personally. Why were you trying to do the same thing I was doing? Was changing my lineup like as soon as the ball kicked off at four p.m. games? I had to take Gronk out because at fucking one o'clock he decides sure. he's not going to play. Yeah. Piece of shit. I mean, I mean, come on now. Unless he wants to come on the show. If Gronk ever wants to come on the show, like... 87 cents if the Patriots win a game. Yeah. <laughs> All right, but hold on. You said you don't trust the technology of it yet. But at the same time, it's not about 100% trust in the technology so much as the, the trust in technology getting higher than the trust in Rhode Island drivers. And, and I think it probably already beats that. I would say that roughly 75% of drivers aren't horrible. But that twenty five percent are just really obviously terrible. Okay, like I, it's kind of like it's twenty five percent that then influence the seventy five percent to have to put up with their shit because you're having to drive defensively. Yes. You're swerving out of the way because someone's texting while they're driving. Yeah, two people are driving and one guy is on the left lane and he's just like hanging up, like so driving super slow and not passing anyone. Yeah, I mean, and then you've got like everyone else behind, like you've got four cars behind him. And I, now it's, it's just a quarter of them. I think it's yeah. probably it's probably slightly more than other states. I think yeah. it's just like... Yeah. But if you think about... like Rhode Island drivers are very... I would equate Rhode Island drivers with Southeastern Massachusetts drivers, too. Mm-hmm. Like, like yeah. number one, it's the fact that we're all surrounded by water. Salt water is terrible for roads. And we, and we have these weather patterns where it freezes one day and it's 55 the next. So, like, it just naturally destroys asphalt. Mm-hmm. So you have people dodging potholes, hitting potholes, like, sidewalks crumble after one season. And I'm not just trying to justify I mean, I'm a terrible driver. 
Like, I am the 25%. I would have guessed. Oh, yeah. I don't know that. I'm I would have guessed. I'm terrible. I'm, I'm a recovering shitty driver. My wife For a while, I really, really, like, there's a part when I had learned how to drive that I was really enjoying, like, bothering people that were driving behind me. Oh, yeah. It was just like, I'm like a, I gotta vent out all this You're frustration. Vindictive. Yeah, I was a real vindictive driver, and I wanted to just, like, no, I'm gonna drive in the left lane. I'm gonna slow this down for you guys. Like, as technology has, like, gotten better, uh, my driving has gotten better. Yeah. Because absolutely. I would have, like, two 300 disc CD wallets, like, in my front seat, and I'm, like, leaving through them, and of course there was a smoker, too, so I'm, like, lighting a cigarette, like, shifting uh, gears, like... Yeah, that's the wrong NoFX record I wanted. I, I wanted the other one! So, like, as... Now that I can just, like, put my iPod on shuffle and it's, like, whatever, yeah. and I don't smoke anymore. Sure. Um, it's different. You got so much time, much more time for texting while driving. Yeah, see, I don't text while driving. I'll, like, talk to text sometimes, yeah. but it's yeah. usually if I'm in traffic. Mm-hmm. If I'm in a stoplight... Yeah, but you can bust out a text. I can bust out a text. That's true. That's not wrong. But yeah. like, I don't. I'm too bad of a driver to chance texting while driver because like I will be the one that gets pulled over. Like I will get that ticket, and yeah. then up for some reason I will go to jail. Do you know anyone that's ever gotten pulled over for texting? No, no, because you can't prove it. It's a stupid fucking law. Like it's texting while driving. Like oh, I was checking my GPS. I wasn't texting. Yeah. Or like my phone rang and I saw it and I turned it off. Yeah. Like a cop is really looking at what you're doing. Like. Same same thing, and if, do you know anyone that's ever been pulled over for not clicking the seatbelt in? Oh, yeah. Yeah? Yeah, my brother. Isn't that really? similar, like, in a, in a way? How do they tell? Because you could just tell. Yeah. They train them on how to do it. Oh. So the state's got a bunch of federal highway money from signing up for the click it or ticket laws. Mm. And they part of that, all the cops got this very intensive training on figuring, like, figuring out when someone's seatbelt's on. If you like, can see the glint of the buckle. Yeah. Well, like, so... As an example, like, my car screams at me when I, my seatbelt's not on. Mm. So it's not even worth it. Yeah. Um, some newer cars, too, like, they'll shut down the radio. They won't let the radio work. Really? Oh, really? Yeah. That's cool. My wife's car does that. It's oh. like, nope, fuck you. Put your seatbelt on. <laughs> and it won't let you, like, attack, like, hook up your Bluetooth after the car has been put in drive. Yeah. So, like, oh, even okay. if I'm in the passenger seat, we have to pull over for me to hook into the Bluetooth because um car's moving. Imagine if all the other cars on the road had that information about your car. Like they will in the future. I don't want those cars knowing. They're going to know that like you they're going to know that I, I listen to, like you don't have a seatbelt strapped in. And I'm listening to nothing but Michelle Branch. That you're listening to Michelle Branch. Absolutely. Actually, I guess everyone already knows cuz Spotify tells everyone what I've been listening to. Is it still kicking it out to Facebook automatically? No, I turned that off. But everyone on Spotify can see their friends, yeah. But do you ever use the private session? I feel like... Incognito mode. Basically. But the thing is, I don't use use the private session to hide embarrassing artists that I'm listening to. I use it to hide the fact that I'll listen to the same thing like four times in a row. Yeah, that's true. I don't want someone to see like the same thing scrolling up the feed. Like, what's going on there? Yeah. Like, does, does the world need to know how, how much music from wrestling I'm listening to like, on a regular basis? Or do they all, they probably already know. Side question. Sure. Best wrestler theme song. Shinsuke you can Nakamura. choose from classic 1980s era, that, I feel Attitude like, Era, and then Modern Era. I feel like those are three distinct different Fair. styles, I think. I mean, you listen to, like, Hulk Hogan's 80s. Ring entrance. It's the very real American. Real, real American is just real like rock and roll. Not even like a slightly ahead from him. Like Ultimate Warriors, just like driving oh, guitar. Yeah, yeah. Did it for me. Yeah, never really did it for me. Um, 
I would posit Bret Hart. Yeah. Bret Hart. Shawn Michaels is a th- Shawn Michaels music Sad, is Shawn Michaels is easily great. top three, he, and he top sets five. the bar for for people who do the the voice in their own songs. Totally, like that's in nope. the time period where everybody tried to do that was corny. He pulled it off for some reason. Yeah, you got a lot of wrestlers that like over time their music changes, like because you know they're going through different phases. But like you know, twenty going on thirty years of Shawn Michaels just having that one song, even when he has to come out and talk about something real serious. That's right. It's, it's still like this. Real I'm retiring today. No, I'm sexy. No. <laughs> and it's gonna be that way. He's gonna come out as like seventy year old like commissioner or something like that, sure. and he's gonna be a sexy boy. That's exactly. Gonna be... Yeah, he's spectacular. There, a side note on that. A side note on the side note. Side side. Um, We're going I, deep. Have on this you guys one. seen the picture of fellow bit player Anne Marie? Yeah. wearing white overalls meeting Shawn Michaels yes. for the yes. first time. Little girl and Marie. With little girl and Marie. Yes. And just crying. It's, it's beautiful. Because it was like too much. She couldn't handle the sexy boy. And he, and he had like sunglasses on it. It's clearly nursing a hangover because that's just the lifestyle he lives. I mean, that's the way they all live. I'm yeah. amazed that he's still alive too. Yeah. Yeah, she she basically like is in that moment is just like fangirling out, like dreaming of being married and, yep. and like remembers this moment forever and like he probably doesn't remember that much. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so my three white wrestling theme songs are Bret Hart, okay. Bam Bam Begelow, Bam good. Bam. That's a, real That's a good one. Um, and currently, I gotta say, I really have a soft spot for Cena. Yeah, yeah, that gets yeah, me I, going. You know what? Yeah, I came back around on that. I think a lot of, and as many people did for him as a person. Yeah, I think his music is, is really. Uh, I don't know. It's a good sample. Really good song. Sample from a great song. Yeah. yeah. What about you, Tim? My three on off the top of my head, I'd say uh, Nakamura Modern, mm. uh, The Rock's original theme. Ooh. And yeah. and uh, the NWO. The NWO's a real good riff. I didn't even think of that. I will, I will suggest now Wolfpack yeah. or Hollywood. Original NWO. Hollywood, yeah, original yeah, NWO. Yeah. Wolfpack is fine, but the original NWO oh! is that guitar riff. <laughs> Anything that opens with a wolf call is Don't turn your back on the wolf pack. You know, I had a GeoCities website that had the lyrics to that song, and the song would automatically play when you travel to it. Like, went to my site. <laughs> That's amazing. That would start playing in the background, and, like, the lyrics were just, like, right there. That's amazing. Yeah. What about you? Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll piggyback on your Nakamura and NWO, and in the bill, I'll, I'll say Chris Jericho's. Ooh! Oh, Lionheart. Lionheart. I will absolutely say Walter Jericho. Persistence. He, Still holds up. He is someone I hated mm. when he like when he was in WCW. I loved him in WCW. I was, I was and then I, he grew on me really hard. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I, I absolutely loved, loved his work. What, now, when he was in WCW, do you think you were young enough that him playing heel... Heal well was just working on you. Yeah. Okay. All right. Perfect. I mean, that shit still works on me. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's like I am a child. Like I, I'm a 32 year old man in every aspect of my life until like I turn on wrestling, and then I'm just like. Oh, that means he's a bad man. Yeah. What is that guy? Hey, somehow, like, Razor Ramon, well, Scott Hall was Cuban. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, yeah. Hey, we put some grease in his hair. He's going to look real Cuban, right? The story <laughs> of that is hilarious. It's like, he pitched that. And yeah. Like, was very blatantly, obviously, ripping off Scarface. Yeah. But because they were so behind, they, like, didn't know what Scarface was. It was also okay to be racist. And, yeah. And, yeah. Well, yeah. And he's the same guy who, who told Sting to rip off the crow. Absolutely. And he did that, too. It worked. Yeah. All of a sudden, Sting went from, like, surfer dude mm-hmm. with, like, David Bowie type. Yeah. Um, Aladdin Sane face makeup to why don't you why don't you uh, why don't you paint your face white yeah. in like what in like the greatest like story like one of the greatest stories of just like hero just you know everyone turned turned their back on him now he's gonna go dark and, and fight fight evil 
Yeah, it was so perfect for the time. <laughs> just execution failed, but like in theory. All right, so now that we've really blown that through that topic, <laughs> I think we really or, covered or, Elon Musk's oh, invention well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait, how far deep did we go? We went. Where the, what was the change? Can we, can we work our way back? Yeah, it went from Elon Musk. Yep. The to brain brain tooth thing. Yeah. Yep. To driverless cars. Well, we we ended it with wrestling. What was right before that? Music. How do we Bluetooth. go? How do we get from no. cars to wrestling? So we had several. How do we get from cars to wrestling? I, I can't tell you. <laughs> By living in the south. <laughs> oh my god! I have no idea. Well, what was the next topic though? Yeah. Oh, I. So our next topic <laughs> <laughs> is um the five second rule. Oh, yes. So, um, Vlad, are you familiar with the five-second rule? No, I don't. So if you drop a piece of food on the ground, you have five seconds to pick it up before it's gone. Before it's tainted. Before it's tainted. I mean, obviously, probably scientifically, germs aren't sitting there like, hold on, guys. We've got to wait five seconds. But I think overall that's a pretty good rule to live by, unless you're just going to give up on everything that falls off the table. Well, that's what I'm fine with it is some people have the thought like, what does it work? Does it not work? I don't, I don't, it doesn't matter to me because right. if I get a couple germs, I'm just bolstering the immune system. It's like a little like food vaccine. Also, science said the five second rule, which I'm assuming is just you drop it, you pick it up, it's fine, you eat it. Yeah. But did they give any information on whether or not after you pick it up, if you, you blow on it real quick a couple times, if that also helps? I don't because know. That's, that's, that was my So are you worried about dirt or just tainting? Both, I guess. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I don't understand what the difference would be. Well, I guess like you can. You can right, blow, so you blow I, a little, you'll get a little duster or like loose sure. hair or something. So if I drop a, if I drop like a sandwich on the ground, right? Yeah. It's probably gonna get dog hair on it. Direct, because sure. as clean as my house is, mm-hmm. dog doesn't give a shit. Right. And there's just dog hair everywhere. Like you just can't see it. Um. So that's my main concern. But black dog hair, easy to find. True. Mm. So you can pull it off. And I'm just not ever willing to give up on food. Yeah. Like, when you grow up in, like, a big Portuguese family, it's either, like, you eat your goddamn food, mm. and there is there are not leftovers, they all go down, and you're wrestling with your brothers over the scraps in the end. And so, like, I have, like, a, I must consume everything. Yeah, dirt don't hurt mentality. Yeah, dirt don't hurt. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm totally with you. Uh, I mean, I've seen I my, I, line, I, but... Yeah. Like, I'm, if something gets, you know, dropped on the ground in the backyard and it's just sitting there for five minutes and has an ants crawling over it, that's a bit much. Well, that's, I mean, that's a different thing, though. That's different, too. That's right. also extremely different. If, if I drop food inside the house, hardwood or carpet, five-second rule in play, if I drop it outside in the dirt, it's done for life. It's never coming back. What? I wouldn't, like, there's no... How far have you gone? What do you mean? So the question, so... Like, grass? Yeah, that's done. I'm not picking it. What about, like, like all... a concrete patio? Mmm. Okay, that's fine. It's fine. Right. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. I know. I built that thing with my bare hands. So, so that, that, that explains how I felt after the last. <laughs> so something about it, like a textured ground, like if there's a grass or dirt going on, is a problem. Well, because it's dirt. It's dirt. It's grass. It's like obviously dirt and grass, but like, like a flat surface, concrete, wood, whatever. It's totally fine. Because it's been, you know. What about like a shag carpet? Mm. Where like, oh, you don't know what's it's, in there. It's, it's inside, but like, the sandwich lands, rug. and there's like bits, like of t- like tendrils of of, of carpet. I've eaten off a bearskin rug. You've eaten off a bearskin rug at Brock's house. While oh, I was at the bachelor sense. party, I dropped a hot dog on it, and I just ate it. Cool. And how did that feel? I mean, 
felt a little manlier afterwards. Mm, that makes sense. I, sure. ate off that, a, <laughs> I ate off a dead bear. You grew a chest hair yeah. like, came out. It was like I just had this white tuft in the middle yep. of my chest. Yeah, because it was were, a polar bear around. Oh, yeah, because you were wearing a, a big white wife beater. Just <laughs> poking right through. Gold chain formed around your neck. <laughs> Back to Razor Remote. Yep. <laughs> Six degrees of Razor. Can I add something to it? Oh, that? yeah, of yeah. course. Yeah. It also depends on the food that had been dropped. If it's a solid food, it's easy to pick up. If yeah. it's a chicken salad full of mayonnaise, you're not doing it. Mm. No. Yeah, yeah. I once dropped, so I had a ice cream sandwich. It was a super chipper, so it was the two big cookies with ice cream in the middle. Mm. Um, I dropped it in the parking lot of Newport Creamery. It fell in an oil spot. <laughs> and I and my wife will never let me live this down because this was like when we first started dating. I just picked it up and I ate around the oil. Sure, ah, sure. So like there was a section I did not eat. Because you just at that point, Oreo. Was motor oil. Yeah, I feel like just take that cookie this off. Oreo and like well, off. so it fell down sideways. Oh. sideways oh. So the ice cream the, and the edge of both cookies touched. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's. Well, yeah, yeah like, like, your wife made fun of you. But let me ask you two questions. Did it taste good? Oh my god, it was spectacular. You did? Not that I know. Right. How far down did you go? Like on the on the cookie, like oh, on the like cookie. right to the edge. So like on a pie, you know, pie chart, you know, what's the percentage of like how far down did you go? So I would say roughly like how much was like tainted? Fifteen percent was tainted. Fifteen percent was tainted. And I then... probably ate eighty-seven percent of it. <laughs> oh wait, yeah. you ate some tainted. So I probably, I yeah. definitely did taste a little bit of motor oil, but I lived to tell the tale. And also now your engine is is running. No, oh, I'm, I'm I am I am lubed up. You are lubed and ready. Actually, I probably am due for an oil change. <laughs> Have you gone 5,000 miles? <laughs> oh, yeah. Hold on, let me check Fitbit real quick. Oh, shit, you're right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just think I just I just think it's okay to pick it up. Just don't let it go. I mean, like Vlad said, like, yeah, I mean, it's a consistency. Like, any yeah. kind of salad, like a seafood salad, don't. a chicken salad, a tuna like a salad. Wetness. a wetness. A wet. Yeah. If it's something that will stick to it. It'll blend in. It's no good. Yeah. It's no good. And you don't want anything porous to fall either. That would not be good. Yeah. Yeah, like like uh, if I dropped like a Trisket. an English muffin upside down, all the nooks and crannies are going to soak up what's on the ground. And then you're cursing Thomas for having all those nooks and crannies. Exactly. You're like, damn exactly. it. Why couldn't you just make it flat like everybody else? What about a donut with frosting on top? Ooh. Now, and well, it falls frosting it, down? Yeah. Well, then I feel like, in that case, I feel like the frosting could be your saving grace because the frosting can be wiped off. It's almost like a barrier, but then exactly. you miss the frosting. If it's something like a chicken salad... Like, it, it kind of blends in with everything, but in this case, the frosting's on one spot, and it's on top of a solid. Hmm. So I feel like then you can wipe it off. This but you're right, you would miss out on the frosting. The I'm not willing to give up on the frosting. <laughs> I feel like <laughs> I was... You're to give up on the frosting or on the 79 cents for another donut. Whoa, where are you getting 79 cents donuts? <laughs> Hang on a second. What? I think Ma's Donuts is 79 cents. What? Right? I think so. I think so. Be right back with they're much cheap. I know they're cheaper than Dunkin' Donuts, so those are ninety nine cents, right? And they're better too. Yeah, yeah. Cummies donuts are like what a dollar? And it's also still better than that blueberry cake donut. Not bad. So good. Surprisingly, blueberry, blueberry cake donut. I don't know where. I feel like it's come up in like the last 10, 15 years. The sour it's cream really donut too on the same the sour. I think that's what it's called. Sour cream donut. Yeah. Is this this is going to be the thing where bits per second devolves into talk about varieties of pastry? Well, I mean, at some point we're just we have to go to the next step and, and just become a tasting podcast. I think that'll be the next one. There's like opening. There needs to be a tasting segment of like. Yeah, you know, we could save ourselves some technological issues and just hang out with mean, food while pretending to be talking at a podcast. We did that for the pork roll episode, where we ate pork roll live on air. 
Oh, that's right. And that's live reactions. Live weird body a, problems. It was like yeah. Talking Dead, but for pork roll. Yeah. Talking pork. Talking pork. Talking, talking, talking Taylor. <laughs> talking Tay. Oh, God. Yeah, that's that's a hard one to do a live thing of because it's just so thick and there's still a lot, there's a lot of things going on. There's a lot sandwich. going on yeah. and the dog ate most of it. Yeah, that was the funniest. Mm. The dog eats most of the things that come to the podcast. With the dog thing. Yeah, that's what she does. Um, so I think that topic's pretty well covered. So now we're moving on to the interview section of our of our uh, show. Yeah, we're gonna talk to Vlad. Yeah. Make up for all of for what this twenty past twenty minutes of uh, <laughs> yeah. alienating conversation. Yeah. So Vlad is um, a member of the Bit Players and is original founding member, right? Yes. You and Anna were both founding members, and um, you are a mine. I mean, you have other qualities as well. But the thing that we like about you is the fact that you're a mime. Um, when did you start miming? Because I know you you were classically trained, but I'm wondering where did it come from? So where where did you get your your feet wet? Um, actually, it was in the summer, and I was probably 13 years old. Um, it was a summer camp, and I was kind of performing or pretending that I was performing. And one guy looked at me and said, you know what? I think I know what you're going to do really well. Let me teach you mine. And I was like one of the five people that he was teaching mine. And it came to me very natural. Mm -hmm. And uh, months later, I come back to the same camp. And I was already professional in my eyes. Uh, And from that point on, I just started performing. Hmm. So there was there no lag? Like as soon as you started doing it, you immediately liked it. Absolutely, it just made sense. Like you, you're... yes, yeah. I I think I was born to be mine. Everything made absolutely sense. I saw other people struggling with coordination, with understanding, what, how. It was absolutely natural and easy to me. It was never hard. So one of the coolest things, that, and we've talked about narrative on the show a lot, and. The coolest thing, I think, about watching you do the mime is the way you tell the story with your body. So you're so good at not just emoting, but becoming the subject you're talking about. So there's a game we play called Good Morning, where you go through the steps of someone waking up in the morning, brushing their teeth, taking a dump, whatever. And Vlad acts as both the person waking up and the tool, like the toothbrush, the toilet, whatever, that is being used. And you seamlessly transition between a person that's doing something and then a machine or an inanimate object that's doing something else. And that's that's super cool. That's an essence of mine, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. When you can, in one second, change the character, change the timing, Mm -hmm. become one or another, young, old, you don't need any special makeups, nothing. No costume change. Yeah. It just your body. And it's very natural for mine. So you started pretty young. Um, so when you came to the States, you came in the 80s, right? In 81. 81. Um, did you immediately go try to seek out some kind of mime stuff? Or did you... Uh, before I came to the United States, I was performing with a theater which called... Um, that's a strange very name, if you're going to translate it, it's called um, Moscow Ensemble of Plastic Drama. <laughs> <laughs> That's a long one. But one way or another, um, 
I performed with them for a little while, and then I performed for various groups. But we were doing not White Face, what you see right here. Yeah. Um, I was doing what they called Mima Drummers. Um, it's a how you go to, to the theater and you see a show, you know, written. That's how it was. Mm -hmm. Only it was on silent. Um, so when I came to the United States, I'm like, well, I know how to do it, but nobody knows what it is. And I got introduced to the man by the name Royal Sorrell. And Royal Sorrell said, you know what? You have to put the white face and all your mind pieces that you do have to be no more than three minutes long, mm -hmm. not 15 or 20. Yeah. And that was a root awakening because I didn't expect that at all. Um, I started performing with him and we started doing it called Royal Mind Company. And we started doing two man show. And where was, was this? It was in Salem, Mass. Okay. And it was kind of successful, kind of okay. We picked up some speed with that. Uh, and then one to another, we never complimented each other. Everyone wanted to be the first. And jealousy became a problem between us. So I went separate way and I started performing outside in Harvard Square got little license to perform outside and at night on the weekends I start doing mime and I quickly realized that people walking by not going to see mime unless it's short and stupid. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, they want to see something goofy. They want yeah, to see something. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and that's when white face distinguished you from everybody else then. So you have to have it. Yeah. So I did that for a while, got tired. Um, and by white face, you don't just mean white people. You mean <laughs> white face. I'm sorry, um, you, you can't do this. You're Puerto Rican. <laughs> I moved to Rhode Island, and there was a dance studio called Studio 33, and Thea Dietrich was in charge of it. And uh, somebody called her and said that there's a new mine in, in Rhode Island, and she always wanted to have mine classes there. And I started teaching classes there, and a year later, I did a Studio 33 mime ensemble. That was the only mime ensemble of um, allegorical mime in Rhode Island. Oh. And it was successful for about five years. And then it was the end of it. When you got the opportunity to teach, did you see that as a chance to bring the, the kind of mime you weren't able to do when you originally came over? Like bring awareness to it and get other people doing it? Um, there's certain things I always wanted to do. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, there's no mind for women. Mm -hmm. And I was able to do it. Uh, there's no mind that was to the music like a dance. Yeah. And I did that, which was great. Um, I did the mind piece where a person disappears in the middle of the stage. I always wanted to incorporate this, mm -hmm. and I did this. So that was very rewarding. Cool. Do you feel like uh, general awareness of mimes has broadened uh, in this area since you've been around, or has it changed at all, or gone away? Or 
I got good reviews. I got a lot of people who said, well, it's very theatrical. We've never seen anything like that. But did it bring me anywhere farther than where I was? No. Okay. It didn't go anywhere. And that was part of the reason why I stopped doing it. I retired from mine, got married, opened the business, and didn't do it for 15 years. Oh, wow. So was it an official retiring, or was it more just you got busy with other things? No, no. It was absolutely conscious. Okay. I can't do it anymore. That was it. Um, At some time, I was having my solo uh, shows. I was with a mime circus in the summertime. I had studio where I was teaching, and then mime ensemble, all at once. Mm -hmm. And after, I would say, about three years of that, I simply burned out. Mm -hmm. I didn't have the name. And when Rose and I decided to get married, we did the last show, and that was I was very happy and content. And for 15 years, I thought I would never perform. It was never in my mind. So how did you get back into it after taking such a long break? What happened was my oldest son, Mark, yep. uh, his teacher in school asked me to perform after she was talking to my wife. Mm-hmm. And my wife volunteered me yeah. to do that. <laughs> <laughs> like it's all uh, happens. Yes. And I did. And it felt extremely great. Yeah. It was like, man... I really miss it. Yeah. And I was pushing 50 in that time. and Out of shape, you know, completely. So, but the bug was already there. Yeah. Like, it has its own side, yeah. And then, it was first night in... Providence. Uh, in Newport. Oh, in Newport, okay. Newport. And uh, I saw that Firehouse Theater was on the map. So I applied for first night. They sent me to Firehouse Theater. I talked to Dan and Jack, and I did the show there. And then about three months later, I was reading um, Newport Weekly. Newport this week, yeah. Yeah, and they had audition for beat players. And it was in the Firehouse Theater. And I'm like, well, I know where it is. (laughs) Might as well go. I may as well go. And I went... Honestly thinking that I can't do improv, it's not for, for me, but what I can do, I can probably feel the space in between. Like yeah. they would have a, three minutes, I would do a little piece that they wouldn't get bored. That's how I had it in my mind. Yeah. And surprising for everybody, I got in. And they didn't know what to do. Well, those of us that perform you every, with you every week are not surprised at all. But, but they didn't know what to do with me. Oh, because right, there yeah. was no... What was that audition like? Basically the same with what we do right now. So that was like 2006? 10 years ago. Yeah. yeah so that means 2007, because it's the 10th year this year. Yeah. So they asked you just to do just games like we do, just so, yes. just so we can get it broadcast to the people yes. that don't know. No. Yes, so, that's exactly what okay. So it's so it just exercises, games, things like that to see your, you, your acting, your physical, and your music, and stuff like that? Absolutely. Cool. And I was very surprised that I got in. It wasn't in my mind at all. Because I had to sing and do all this stuff. Yeah. You said they didn't know what to do with you initially, so how were they using you early on? Um, location, career, death. That was the only thing that 
basically was for me. Mm-hmm. Um, just as now, I couldn't sing, I couldn't be in a scene, like speaking scene. A lot of references would go right over my head. Uh, I was good three minutes behind everybody else. Mm-hmm. And I felt terrible. I felt very inadequate. No. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I wanted to make myself needed. Mm-hmm. And I asked and I asked and I asked, you know, what I can do, what I can do. And nobody knew what to do with me. And that's how I end up with a one-man show. I just create my own pieces. And Good Morning is one of them. Oh, really? Uh, so that was part of the original yeah. One Night Show. Cool. So was there a, a, a turning point at all where you felt like your contribution to the group uh, was, was enough for you that you felt satisfied or felt like you were contributing? Uh, when I did the one-man show, the group went through a very strange situation at that mm-hmm. time. And only one person came to my one-man show from the group. Mm-hmm. Um, when at the rehearsals, usually they ask, you know, what are you proud of? And I said, well, I created a one-man show, and there was no response to it. But, okay, and what about you? Mm-hmm. I didn't feel any appreciation to be part of the group. Mm-hmm. And I think they thought that I didn't have appreciation for the group because I went separate from them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I just wanted to fit in. That's all yeah. I wanted. Um, it's changed a lot since Frank took over. He made me part of the show. He created some pieces for me. He made me comfortable as a member of the group. Yeah. And that feels so good. Now you're a core member. Now it's now whenever we have a show and you're not in it, it's like, ah, oh, yeah. that would have been perfect for Vlad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because there's a there's a big there's a big obvious physical hole that's always in, in a show without 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 you in it. Probably. And there's also I don't think it's any secret that every time you're not in a show, someone from the audience says, "Where was Vlad tonight? Where is Vlad?" Because <laughs> you're right, like it, it's such a different element than what everyone else brings. So like you know, and one uh, of the things that separates us from so many other yeah, they don't have a Vlad. We do. Got him. <laughs> Got him. Got him. So, dispel some of, like, the common misconceptions about mimes. So, like you said, there's white face mime. But that's just a subset, right? I mean, you had sent us a bunch of information that you'd shared with a bunch of from mime books. Explain where the white face trope comes from mm-hmm. and then what the other side of that is like what 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 else is there okay uh the white face in united states here it's popular because it got been it had been introduced in 1955 with marceau performing and he was wearing white face there was nothing like that on the stage before so they associate uh mine with a white face in order to become a mime, you have to go through extensive training. You have to have understanding of the art. But to put the white face is very easy. So a lot of people who would like to become mime, well, that's the easiest thing to do. Mm-hmm. And as soon as you put a white face, well, you're a mime. You yes. identify as a mime. And then you're in a box. <laughs> yeah, so you, it sticks very close and very fast. Now... 
since when uh, makeup becomes the art, you know, carrier? It's not. It's all the way around. Um, but because it had been introduced this way, that's how it ended up. Why it was a white face, that's what is the interesting thing. Uh, Marceau put the white face as a reference to Pierrot, uh, who is a character in Comedy Delight. The clown, right? Yeah, yeah. the white face clown. This is one root of it. Second root of it is how mime, the contemporary mime, was born in France. It was through experimental theater, and the theater wanted to be separated from the regular theater. We don't want to do regular stuff. We want to do new stuff. So one of the exercises they come up was a mask exercise. Yeah. Okay? So the actor, speaking actor, they would put mask on. Uh, it doesn't have to have any you know, happiness or anything, just blank mask. And all of a sudden, they notice the person who's actor acts absolutely different. Yeah. Because he compensates for the most important part, the most important tool of his craft, face. Yeah. It's almost like wearing a bag on your head and trying to show so emotion. the body, yeah. yes, start compensating for it. With us, we see the same thing when we speak English or gibberish. Gibberish becomes louder and more gestures, mm -hmm. all of a sudden. The same thing with a regular actor as soon as they're losing face. And they said, wow, we never saw anything like that. And they start learning more and more and more about it till they, just, till they figured out that it's a movement, it's a gesture, it's a nuance, it's a pose, it's a tempo, all because they don't have face anymore. Yeah. Okay? When they start developing more and more the movement part of it, they realize that spoken word doesn't meet anymore. There's a divorce between speaking part and movement. Mm -hmm. They don't complement each other anymore. Mm -hmm. So the spoken word became less, 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 less. And then the actor stopped speaking all together and somebody else was... Uh, commenting, mm -hmm. you know, doing the, the lines. And then they said, well, even that is not necessary. So they got rid of that guy, and it became silent. But actor who became silent, they still had in mind the mask, that exercise that created everything. So they start putting the white talc on their faces as a memory of that that started. And mask became stylized. The face became stylized. Um, so that's another reason for the white face. Huh. Wow. That's, that's fascinating. And then what about other like, sub-branches of mime? Like what, you mentioned uh, uh, the, the, what you were doing in Russia ahead of time. Okay. What, what else is there, uh, aside from what Americans think of as standard miming? All right. If you think of mind, you're always thinking of the person, certain age, going through everyday routines, okay? Mm -hmm. So it's a character mind, basically. Uh, it could be old person, young person, man, woman, uh, maybe an object, but you still can relate to it. Try to imagine that you'll do a philosophical idea 
through the movement. Okay? And you would like to represent the feeling of the water going through your fingers. Or you would like to represent the fire. Let me give you a very simple example. Okay? The mind called man and fire. Man shows up out of nowhere. And he grows like a heart beat. Each time he's getting bigger. And then he walks. He walks through life. Maybe there's a, a maturity in his walk. It's hard to, to say. But then he realizes there's a fire. He picks this fire. It doesn't burn him. It gives him warmth. Maybe food. We, we, we don't know. But it's something that is great. It's wonderful. So he goes and he gives this fire to everybody. He shares it. He turns around and becomes different man. And he walks through the same steps. He grows, he becomes mature, and he sees the fire. But for him, fire is a destruction. It's a war. And he takes this fire and he says, it's mine. And while it's mine, I am the strongest. And you all under me. And guess what? People start stealing this fire from him. Why? Because they want to be strong. And he became nobody. He turns around and he becomes old. It's not him, but somebody else, another man. And it's old man. And he doesn't have any strength at all. And he comes to the same fire. He takes it and he drinks it. It's a fire inside of us. It's that energy that keeps us going. It's a knowledge. And guess what? It's internal. So that's a mind piece. It's not funny, but it's one of the things that you watch once and you remember and you learn. Yeah. And it's philosophical statement. So that you don't see here on the stage at all. Mm -hmm. um, that's how it is. It's a poetry. Mm -hmm. So I kind of want to get off topic for one second. Because I think something that's always interested me is your day job. Mm -hmm. So you make dentures. Yes. Right? You make teeth. How did you get into that? Because that's such an interesting, like... Job. The kind of job, uh, it seems to me at least, it seems that people don't think about unless it's like present them as an idea. Like, oh yeah, right. that's obviously someone will be doing that, but it's not thought of. You never think about it. Like, oh, I'm going to be a doctor. I'm going to be a lawyer. I'm going to make teeth. Like, and it's not one of those things that, like, so how did you get into it? Okay. Let's start with one simple thing. My parents said, you're not going to be mine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so you have to figure out the way to make a living. Um, not many things were possible for me. Okay, I couldn't go into international relationship because who I am in the Soviet Union yeah. it would never be open for me. So I was never good at music. Obviously, that was never good for me. I was never good at math or science. So certain things were absolutely closed for me. What I was good at, at making something with my hands and those little things that I make now yeah. with Play-Doh, yeah. uh, I used to do it when I was a little kid. So I knew it has to be something technical and something with my hands. Yeah. So that's one aspect of it. 
Second aspect was I tried into the medical school. I couldn't get in because of my grades, because of not ability just to pass exams. I was under the fire to go to the army, because if you're not in school, you have to go to, to the army. This was the only way to do it. I looked what schools were still I could apply to, mm -hmm. and that was a school. And that was kind of close to what I wanted. I wanted to go to dental school. I couldn't, but this is a dental lab school, and I, they were still opening, so I applied passed the exam and got in. And um, I liked it. Um, got good grades, finished, uh, finished school, and they sent me to the hospital to work there. And uh, it took me about three years to kind of understand what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And when I moved here, I had a job. Hmm. So did you work for someone else doing that when you first got here? Or yes. did you? Okay. And then eventually you opened your own lab. I didn't mean to. <laughs> um, yeah, I got laid off. Okay. Um, and what happened, by that time I was already married and we had mortgage. Yeah. I didn't have kids yet. But I got laid off. And all of a sudden I'm like, oh my God, what am I going to do? So I applied for, not applied, but I went for the interview for other jobs. And within a three or four days, I got three or four offerings mm -hmm. right away because I had a good reputation in the business. Everybody know each other. Yeah. It's a small, get, it's a small group of people. Very small group of yeah. people. And I get very good reputation what I can do. So people gave me the job right away. And I said to myself, wait a second. I don't have to worry about job anymore. But now is a great opportunity to do something different because I have unemployment check coming in. It will never happen. Yeah. So I can start. And um, I was already working for my employer at night, mm -hmm. doing some peace work at home. Yeah. So I had everything set up. Yeah. Um, I lived in Barrington. It's reasonably expensive part of the state. Yeah. So there's no lapse there. It's too expensive to keep a lab there. Yeah. Um, I send out flyers, and three months later, I didn't get my employment check. It wasn't worth it. It just started growing. Yeah. And from that point on, um, I have my business. It's been over 20 years. Oh, that's cool. That's, just, that's, <laughs> that's like a really good story. I always wonder a thing about when people uh, emigrate from other countries. Why? What? What? What was it about this part of the country, about New England, that you came to? Like, why here? I always is always a question I wonder. Because your parents are immigrants too. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. And I always wonder, like, what what drew you? What by here and not, you know, anywhere else? Well, originally it was Boston, yeah. North Shore, Lynn. Uh, the city is in because we had relatives. There. Oh. We had somebody who would meet us and we could spend the night. Say hello. That's how they end up there. I don't okay. know. Yeah, yeah, but that's where they end up, and that's why we end up. So it's like people you could communicate with, people you could talk to. It was the, simply people that we knew. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was cousins of mine, and after us, my cousins already came here for the same reason because yeah. we were here, <laughs> and they came to North Shore. Same yeah. reason. That's probably the story of 
almost every Portuguese person in there, yeah, too. For sure. <laughs> like, oh, my, my primo is over there. <laughs> yeah. That's why all my family is all live within 50 feet of each other. What I want to talk about, I don't know if yes. you oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, we have all the time. We're not buying time, so we can talk as much as we want. All right. <laughs> um, I'm doing improv, you know, for past 10 years, and it's, I'm very thankful to it because it renewed my love for the art of mind. I kind of rediscovered this. And when I start thinking about mime as an art and improv as an art, to my surprise, it was a lot of similarities. And some of them very generic, and some of them very concrete. Mm -hmm. So I have a big piece of paper. You know how organized I am. Yeah. <laughs> And I listed them, and I was surprised how many it is. And if you want, we can go through them. No, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Let's talk about it. All right. First of all, both of them are performing arts. Yeah. It's got to be in front of an audience. Absolutely. Yeah. Second, both form of art, very new. Mm -hmm. Because mine was born basically mm -hmm. just before World War II, the way we know. Yeah. It's a French school of mine. And um, probably was like right after World War II, I believe. I have to ask you. Yeah, it was yeah, it was, was down close in Chicago. It was like the 60s or... Yeah. I'm not, I'm, I think it was early, even a little early. I think it was worse, like within like five, eight somewhere. years of, of mine becoming yeah. a thing. Yeah. So both of them very reasonable. <laughs> now... Inside the mind community, okay, we have uh, allegoric corporal mind and character mind, which is more funny, short, a little bit more gimmicky, and a long and uh, uh, allegoric part, which is more art. Mm -hmm. Well, guess what? It's long form and short form. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, one is more arty, one is more gimmicky and funny. Um, now. Both camps, both schools, have kind of rivalry. They're like cousins mm -hmm. that would rather not to be in the same yeah. room all the time. A long so, former oh, and a short yeah. former. Yes. Very different types of same people. Same thing in mind. Yeah. You know, people who say in corporate, this is, the, uh, this is the only mind that should be, this is the pure art, and you're selling yourself short with everything else. It's interesting that the same thing happens in mind. Actually, before you go on, just I don't know if it's on your list or not, but yep. something that you made me think of when you talked about how they both came out at the same time, when you were talking about how they, uh, in France, were experimenting with, with minimizing the verbal, and then eventually they got to the point where they said, we don't even need the words, we just do it with our body. Improv, at some point, was just like, we don't need a script, we can do this on our own. There are things that we can carry forward, and it's interesting how they both came from people that were just experimenting and playing with the form of live theater, and like what you can do and like pushing the boundaries. It's and, like, like both yeah. of them were minimalizing an aspect of performance, but just minimalizing different parts of it. For sure. Yeah, yeah. you're just getting down to the base. You're getting down to the brass tacks of the performance. For sure, yeah. Where one is the physical, the other one is the... You did, on your feet, like going back and forth yeah. in front of an audience. Another thing which I was thinking about is in order to appreciate mine, you have to be in control environment. Mm -hmm. You have to watch it. You can't just passively, like music. You have to be there. So it's a theater, and you have to watch it. The same thing with improv. It can be passively 
would. You That's why you can't do it outside. Like outside improv, whenever we try to do a show outside, mm. it just doesn't work because you need yeah. you need singular focus. Absolutely. Because everything you're doing on stage, and same thing with, with the mind, every movement you're making that's a line you know that that is yes. you're saying something Absolutely. so it's 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 got to be very you've got to have an audience focus i mean a little drunk but but focused <laughs> another thing is um let me just think okay mine when you look it in the theater it affects you when you watch mine on a screen like on tv you feel removed from it yeah. it doesn't translate well to, to the tv um i think the same thing happens in mine uh, in uh, improv yeah, yeah. Yes. absolutely when you're there when you live with it it yeah. takes you over when you watch on tv it's not as impressive no, yeah. but I can I can definitely say for personal experience, people that have well, I've had people that watch the live show because through like I say, hey, we can stream, and they're just, it's just like it's not the same. No, but then on the other side, it was things like whose line watching it on TV that was actually like what made me want to do it. And though, yeah. but and the thing like those Which, are the but those are the best. best. And, and not only are they the best, but they record a lot of sure. material and cut out. It's the more best or less moments. like a, yeah, it's like a yeah. greatest hits of their like improv game. Which brings me to another thing. Mm -hmm. Both art form got introduced to the white public through TV. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, another thing which is very interesting, both art form, and this is only generic things, we're not going into the meaty meaty of it, uh, the both art forms have followers, but not white audience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They're like cult, but not mainstream. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, if you compare to the dance, for example, see, you know, moms bringing their four years old to the dance studio and they're there till they're 15 years old mm -hmm. and then they would go and see recitals and there's nothing like this in improv, there's nothing right. like this in mind. It doesn't exist. Um, now we can go to the, the like the meat of yeah. it. Yes. The meaty meaty. <laughs> Mine creates its own world out of nothing, okay? And he starts living in this world. It has nothing to do with reality. Mm -hmm. uh, the great example is, you know, mine as an actor comes out on the stage, takes a little balloon, blows it up, tightens it up, and all of a sudden balloons start flying. It has nothing to do with reality. You know it would be in real life with some on the floor. But when... It's not the balloon just uh, flies, but it picks actor up, and mm -hmm. actor is flying in the air. It beyond anything that would be in reality. But as an audience member, you're absolutely enjoying this. You're yeah. accepting this as a reality that has been built. The same thing we have an improv. As ridiculous as it is, yeah, absolutely. the reality right. that you created. You, you, you give them some, something that lets them interpret this other world. It becomes normal because they understand this world works differently. Absolutely. You let them color it in. Yeah. And you give them the outline. Another thing, in order to build a mind piece, 
you can't start crazy. You have to introduce who you are, where you are, what you're doing, create that reality, and then it can go crazy and absolutely out of work. The same thing with the scene work in uh, improv. Mm -hmm. yeah. You can't start crazy. There's nowhere to go. You have to start simple and build and build and build. And as soon as you build your foundation, you can go anywhere you want. Yeah. Yeah. The rules. Um, well, we, as a mind, and we talked about it earlier, as an actor, you can be man, woman, young, old, object, animal, same thing in the improv. Mm -hmm. um, in mind, we don't need any special props, we don't need any uh, costumes, mm -hmm. uh, we don't need special lightings, it's not necessary, same thing in improv. Everything is just there. In uh, mind, we can move time. And I think I gave you an example on one of the workshops. I don't know if any of you were there. Mind turns once and uh, he has just a brick. And he's trying to kill somebody with a brick. And then he turns around and it became a spear. Yeah. So time pro progressed. And then he turned around and becomes a bow and arrow. So time advanced. And then he turns around and becomes a, a rifle. rifle. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Time collapses and then becomes automatic weapon. Mm -hmm. So and basically you're just rotating and changing things. But time is big. Or opposite. You walk like a little baby, and then three steps later, you're a teenager, and then two steps later, you're adult, and next thing you know, five steps later, you're an old man and you die. It's just walking through, and time goes with you. The same thing happens in uh, improv. Uh, five minutes later, yeah. two minutes earlier, mm -hmm. you know, ten years from now, yeah. it's... One little thing, and we're already there. And it's fascinating to watch. Yeah, it absolutely is, because you get, you see it in regular drama, or movies, TV shows, just kind of very singular and linear kind of tale. But mm -hmm. kind of being able to drop the rules and, and play with the form a little bit to tell like really interesting stories or, you know, make, make philosophical points. You don't have to be linear. Right. You can go yeah. in any direction you want to. Yeah. So that's, I think, all what. I had, as far as similarities mm -hmm. in mime and improv, uh, it's interesting. And I'm sure we can find more. I'm sure if Frank would sure. be around, he'd come up with, oh, yeah. it's possible that with some more. I, I was, uh, while, while you, were, you were talking about the, the entertainment and TV aspect of it, I was trying to think of my actors or, or, or art mime artists that became famous because of mime. Because in improv, you get a lot of improv performers that start out doing improv, but then they very quickly become actors, comedians, etc. They move up to like SNL, and then they go become actors in movies and stuff. And they're not necessarily known because they're you know improvisers. They're known for being you know on a TV show or because they're actors now. My, now for mimes, for Robin Williams, there you go. Absolutely, it's another thing where it's not necessarily mime helps accentuate the things in acting that like. You know, There's you a picture somewhere else. of him in white face. Per, per there is. Yes. You're right. I think I know, yeah. I know what you're talking about. Yeah.
I think both just can be a base skill set that any performer starts with, mm -hmm. and they just use it as a starting point to develop, and then uh, they start to see the similarities in performance in all the other aspects and grow from there. So, yeah. like Vlad's pointing out all these these commonalities between mime and with improv, and those things came in time as he was a mime who was forced to do improv and become comfortable with it and see that a lot of things there are the same and then he could transfer those skills over. Absolutely. Um, I would like to tell you a story, if I have time, I don't think so. Oh, yeah. 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 All right. um, why mime doesn't translate on a video that well, mm. okay? And this is the life example that I could uh, tell you because I lived through that. It was in Ann Arbor, uh, and Marcel was performing on stage. And uh, he did a mind piece which called uh, Pocket Picker? Pickpocket. Pickpocket. Okay, whatever. <laughs> and while he's dancing with a woman, she's picking up his pocket, and he has a big wallet, mm. you know, w w with the money. So he takes it from her and puts it in another pocket and she takes it from that pocket and you know <laughs> he puts it in the back and it goes back and forth all the time so I've seen him through the years so I know the mind piece I know how it's supposed to be he comes out on the stage the music starts he's going through uh, and uh, the the money thing what do you call the it wallet? the wallet shows up and he's trying to put it in a pocket, and it doesn't go, and I see it doesn't go. So he's trying again, and it doesn't go, and he's trying again, and it doesn't go, it doesn't go, and doesn't go. So I know there's something wrong on a stage. But people probably didn't know. And they're laughing, but he's trying to cover it up, and it's not working right. And at one moment, he just turns around, drops it on the floor and saying shit in French and leaves the stage. <laughs> now, in that moment when he stopped performing, I physically saw him shrink. Mm. Because when he performs, he performs for you. And you see him that big. It doesn't matter how far you are sitting. He's huge. Okay? As soon as he stopped performing, that energy is gone and you can physically see him shrink if you would watch it on tv it would never happen mm. the energy is just doesn't it, it doesn't exist mm. yeah. that memorizing that you see in a live performance it's hypnotic it doesn't exist mm. so on tv it would be just like da 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 oh crap and he left yeah. that shrink would never happen. You would never see it. Yeah. And this is something that I lived through. Wow. Yeah. I feel like that's one thing that we shouldn't skip over, but the time you spent training under him, under Marcel Marceau, what was, what was that experience like? It was in the summer um, in Ann Arbor. He opened the first uh, workshop in the United States. I performed in Harvard Square, and in Harvard Square, if you guys remember, there's a lot of news kiosks yeah. mm -hmm. and they sell them all and I saw Geo magazine and on the top of the magazine in front there was a Marceau picture of, of Marceau in his white face well I had to buy it yeah. <laughs> so I bought it brought it home and I'm reading the article and in the end of the article it said that 
Marceau is opening master classes for you know young mimes in Ann Arbor, Michigan. You can apply and you can go through the selection, you know, addition. So friend of mine videotaped me and he videotaped the fire, man on fire piece. Mm -hmm. Because it was my favorite. And uh, I sent it there. And about months later, I got a letter and said, guess what? You got accepted. So, which was great. Um, I went there. And it's about 20 of us. Maybe 25 of us. And I was, what, maybe 25 in that time? Maybe 26. Already getting old for doing anything with mine. Everybody were way younger than me. We're in a big room, like dance studio, and he walks in, and we're on the floor, and nobody knows what to do. So I start clapping because <laughs> <laughs> I have to. Yeah. So we clap. He said, "Thank you very much," and um, you know, we went through the selection, and you guys, you know, fortunate one, thank you very much, and. And that's how it started. And we start doing exercises. And then, next day, you would go to the theater. And in the theater, he would do about an hour and a half lecture, history of the mind, whatever mind, whatever we're talking about, interpretation of it. Uh, and then you would show him what you can do. Like, your mind pieces that you do. So, I showed him a piece which called Horns. Uh, and he loved it. That was great experience. Um, another piece that I showed him was a pianist. And that one was interesting because he got on the stage and he said, well, try to do this. And he does this. And I'm like, okay. And I do something else. And people laughing every single time when I do something or he does something. And we play piano together, basically. Wow. Wow. Uh, that was a highlight of, the, of that first year. Mm. Second year, you have to audition again. And I auditioned again and I got in and uh, he was teaching just as much as he was teaching first year, but he brought some assistants with him. Some assistants, and I s uh, remember Tomaszewski Theater, mm -hmm. and I said, this is the guy that I studied with? Yeah. Stefan. So he was from Poland, and he brought him. Also, there was another man from uh, India. Hmm. He was like a yoga guy. Hmm. So he got in, and then there was somebody else, I don't remember. Oh, one of his sons came in, he did something. But what was interesting, the yoga guy from India, okay, he had a very interesting workshop, how to do animals. And he based everything on Indian culture. They have some kind of dance movement that represents tons of different animals 
And he's like, well, this is from here, this is from here, and this is from the heart, and this is from the stomach, and this is from your back, and you become an animal, like different creature. That was very interesting workshop. It was just once, I wish I would do more. Mm. His son did workshop on um, yoga, and it was basically the same thing, how you can incorporate movement, performance movement through yoga. Was it, that went over my head. Was it like incorporating yoga directly into performance, or was it like using yoga to make your body better for, for performing? Neither. Yeah, okay. It's a philosophy of yoga. Okay. Okay, applying to the performing gotcha. arts. Went right over my head. Um, with Stefan, it was a very interesting experience. Poland is a communist country, you know, in that time. So, I'm from Soviet Union in that time. So, he did a mind piece with a Poland flag, okay, where he was wrapping it all around him. He was in the flag. And from point view of Poland, that was very patriotic. From <laughs> point view of Soviets, that was very offensive. <laughs> so, I, I found it very interesting. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. What's uh, What do you think? What's the like? If you had to take away one thing from that whole experience training with the two the, the years you spent there, like what's the one thing? That, it doesn't just have to be for mind, but for life or anything. Like the one biggest, most important thing you learned. Oh gosh, I can't tell you. Huh. Um, I would say how limitless the art form is. Because it's, you know, if you think about it, it's so easy adaptable to so many different things. Like one guy, Indian, and he does like Indian. Here we are in improv, and we're using mime as well. Mm. It's adapts to us. And it's limitless. That's probably for the first time I saw it. Absolutely. And you can adapt it to the dance. If you think, like, circus, people who do juggling, you know, great juggling, they have to be a little bit mine. Mm. You know, all the timing, the looking, the, yeah. you know, uh, magician, you have to yeah. be mine. Yeah. You have to be. You have to project. That's almost things. mostly mine. Because a, a lot, lot of, of a lot of magic is sleight of hand. So what they want you to look, they want you to look over here while they do something down here. So and it's, usually something here. it's usually very narrative too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it's very applicable. Hmm. Um, another thing in improv, you know, I'm strong physically. He's strong musically. He's strong, you know, see to do the scene. Uh, you strong in narrative, so you bring your best to it to fit. The same thing happens in mind. You know, we have minds who very technical. Oh, which brings me to another thing, which is <laughs> great to watch. Very, very technical, and they kill for it. And some minds, they're not great technicians. They're more actors, mm -hmm. and they bring that. Mm -hmm. uh, other mimes, they're great storytellers. And they tell you the most wonderful story through the movement. Uh, yes, they have technique. 
yes, they have artistry, but the story is that's for dreamer. So they bring the best thing into it. Um, do I have to one more minute? You've got all the time you need. All right. <laughs> um, watching Marceau through years was great experience. Mm-hmm. Why? Because when I saw him, he wasn't that old or sick. And a lot of his pantomimes that he did were very technical. Okay? He was very, very precise in everything what he did. The older he get, physically he couldn't do it. There's nothing you can do about it. You know, men perform till what? He was 80 years old. Mm-hmm. So what he could do in the 60s or 50 years old and what he could do in the 80s, two different things. So he started changing his routines, not in concept, but technically, that he would be able to do it. Uh, and he became better actor because he had to compensate for what he couldn't do technically. Um, the simple example is a lot of his beep pantomimes, beep, it's a character that he created, ended up in spinning. He just would look up and just turn and turn and turn and turn and light would go to, to nothing. That's how he went and up a lot of them. Kind of eternity. That's how it is. He couldn't spin anymore. He just couldn't. Because he would lose the balance. He would go to the right or to, or to, or to, or to the left. And I saw him start turning slower. You know, with each year. And slower. And then finally he stopped turning. He just looked up and light would go down. Mm-hmm. So it would adapt. But another thing which would be interesting, and I just mentioned, he became greater actor. He has a piece, which is probably one of my favorite pieces. It's called Mask Maker. And it's a man who makes masks. And he made mask, this was sad, and he made mask that was funny. And he changing them, one to another, one to another. His face became sad, funny, sad, funny, sad, funny. Guess what? The sad one stuck on him. He can't take it off. And agony starts. You can see a man in front of you with a happy face. I'm sorry, happy face got stuck. With a happy face got stuck, but the rest of the body is in agony. I saw him in the 80s and in the 90s doing the same piece, and in the 90s it was stronger. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because he was better act. I mean, he was always a genius. You know, like how you can be better? But he compensated, he brought himself that part of his talent it was, you could cry w- with him. You could see tears. You could feel it. Because his body tried to take this happy mask. Yeah. And mask just stuck there. Yeah. Um, it's great to watch. That's, fu- that's actually really funny, Tim, because that made me think of, like, how many professional wrestlers have we seen that start out young, athletic, 
jumping all, jumping over, the all over the place. But then when they get older, they can't keep doing that because their bodies break down and, and they just physically can't do it. But in the but in return, they become much better at telling a story, at being able to accentuate the agony, the fame, the faces, the struggle, you know, putting together something much yeah. simpler and safer. They kind of control the energy of the crowd. Better. Yeah, exactly. They become better at these other things when, like, their body gives up. It's Shawn Michaels. Exactly, yeah. He's he, a great he, you know, Ric Flair is another great example who was shockingly having amazing matches late, in, late into his career. And mm-hmm. Also, compare, I, I just compare Marceau to professional wrestling. Yeah. Well, you know what? You know what? You know what? Uh, I feel what like what I, can I, help I, professional wrestling skills is mime work. Yes, absolutely. Very, very, very applicable. Yes, yes. I mean, again, it's just performing arts. Uh, it's yeah, uh, all like the Musashi quote: uh, "When once you once you know the way broadly, you will see it in all things." There you, you go. Become an expert in one thing, and you can that will help you become an expert in everything else. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, all performing arts. You know, as we discussed with mime and improv, they all share so much. Like that's the beauty of live theater and the beauty of experiencing things happening for you in the moment, never again, right in front of you. Yeah. All right, so this is the part where we are of our podcast where we talk about one thing that we cannot. Stop bitsing about. It's what this? Quit your bitsing. Quit. All right. Your I remember this time because I'm sober. <laughs> <laughs> Quit bitsing about your bits. Quit bitsing about your bitsing. So uh, everyone has one topic that they just can't stop thinking about, and I will start because I am all the way to the right. Um, I'm bitsing about the national anthem. Um, Ooh. Yeah. Yikes. Hot takes. Yikes. It's the timing. I give a shit about Colin Kaepernick, so it's not about that. Okay. Um. I think our national anthem just isn't really that great. Mm. I don't think that's a hot take. I think it's just kind of an obvious <laughs> fact. So we have a national anthem where most people in this country, even the most accomplished singers, mm. cannot pull it off. Right. Mm-hmm. It's like an impossible song to sing. Like, it's up and down. It's up and down. Yeah. It's, 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 it's just jumping octaves everywhere, mm. and it's just... It's a weird allegory about like rockets and war and stuff. I get that like that's quintessentially yeah. American. Written by a guy that owns slaves. Like I mean, it just <laughs> how, so, how that's the most and American. Not, and the thing is, like, it wasn't even our national anthem until what, like Late, the, yeah. like the like the early twentieth century. I think it was wasn't it World War One that we actually it's decided not sure exactly. to pull the trigger. It was somewhere. I think. So the song yeah. was about a hundred years old. Like no. I mean. America the Beautiful. Like, that makes a lot more sense. Like, you're actually describing the country. Not just shit blowing up. <laughs> um, so... They were just really into that back then, though. I mean, I'm not saying I, well, I, I prefer Germany. But Deutschland, Deutschland, Uber, Alice. Like, it's easy Ooh. to sing. Like, you sure. would sing that in a beer hall. So, like, when people, like, at the Olympics. Like, the, the Olympics made me think of this, too. Because mm. we sit through ours, and it's just like, yeah, it's still hard to... It's even right. it wasn't to. Yeah. Uh, so... Like America, I don't want to be accused of like not loving my country, but yeah. I'm just over the national. You want you want the best for the country. Right. I want the best. You and want the best. And if possible. the best just happens to be James right. Brown's living in America, ooh, that I could definitely. That would I could, yeah. I could fly with that. I, I've I've frequently advocated it's not an America specific song, but I've very frequently ad, uh, advocated to change the theme of the United States. To remix Ignition by R. Kelly. Oh, because I feel like, out the yeah, it might not lyrically be America, but Mama I feel like it's spirit. It's true. I mean, at some point, America was hot and fresh out the country, like That's the right. world kitchen. You yeah. know, and how much Coca Cola and rum does America drink? I bet it's a lot. It should be a lot. And it's the freaking weekend. We work hard. That's true. Work hard during the week. <laughs> 
We're about to have me some fun. That's what I'm talking about. To, to, I like I'm glad so, you guys are on board. To, to, yeah. So hot takes on the national anthem. Yikes. What are you bitsing about, Lobo? Man, you really put me on the spot. We, I was going to bits about drivers, but we've, we've talked about we, drivers. We've talked about drivers. We've talked about drivers into, into death. Uh, I think... I think my, I... After, you know, the events of this week, uh, we had a lot of... Uh, a lot of people bitsing about... Apple. People bitsing about Sony. People bitsing about billion-dollar corporations and their... Billion dollar decisions being, and being scummy billion dollar companies. Being scummy billion dollar companies, and and I think a lot of people end up uh, finding reasons to to bits about every little decision. And you know, Apple's taking the headphone jack out, so everyone's it's it's all aboard. Let's let's shit on a, another co- corporation. You, like, you you can't feel like slightly about it. You can't like no. hear that that Apple's doing that and go, oh, whoa, that's a little weird. Oh, we'll see how it goes. Everyone's got to have a strong like, oh, that's dumb. Yeah, you got to. Re- everyone's coming at it real hard, and it's like, man, if you were like me and you're trying to pre-order that damn phone on Friday, then you realize that everyone doesn't give a shit, and they are still going to make millions and billions on on the things they sell. And it's like, you know, you could really be pointing that kind of aggression for your consumer products a little more productive ways. How about? You know? Big pharma. Like, how about... Sure. As opposed yeah. to, like, my my phone toy. Yeah, 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 I mean, like, people did the same thing when Apple switched from the, um, I mean, the we, pins to the lightning cord. Yeah. No, it's like, oh, well, they're doing this, and I'm like, yeah, and everyone bought the fucking iPhones 5 and 6. Absolutely, yeah. And they, they sold tons, and, you know, most people have one so of those. So now we're not going to have a headphone jack, which oh. will suck for people okay. who don't have Bluetooth in their car. Sure, yeah. But you, they'll give you an adapter, and you totally rock with that, if you'd like. And yeah. eventually they'll have dual adapters so I can both charge my phone and listen to shit, like whatever. Absolutely. Yeah, or sometime at some point, battery life will get so good, it won't even matter. Yeah. Wireless I charging will be more Wireless charging will be a thing. But I mean, you know, like you said with Big Pharma, <coughs> we had a good run with that. People uh, getting... EpiPens. The EpiPens and, and lo and behold, they, they're dropping what, a, a generic version of it. It should yeah. be so much cheaper, so I feel like... That was a good example of recent history of... Oh, I'm just stocking up on hypodermic needles and, and yeah. synthetic epinephrine. <laughs> okay. now, you don't probably get to an airport with that shit. Synthet- <laughs> now, do you need them, or are you just trying to stockpile them so you can raise the prices on people who need them when... Uh, the oh, no, comes? I need them desperately. Oh, okay, okay. okay. I, thought, I thought we had a March. I got a couple, I got a couple of those. What's your allergy? Now? Nuts. No, oh, that that's new, right, that's right. Is that a new segment of the show? What's your allergy? What's your allergy, yes. Yo, hey, what's him? What's your allergy? Uh, cantaloupe. Oh, <laughs> Not cantaloupes, cantaloupes. Cantaloupes? Yep. Is it, it's, it's a cantaloupe thing. No, cantaloupes, that, like 1990s song that... Uh, cantaloupe. That's like a flow with the sound of the mighty might master rhyming on the mighty... But I feel like it's 20, 2016, so you can find a lot of examples of people a-looping. That's true. So, so what are you bitsin' about, Tim? Uh, I'm bitsin' about a real old rule that I think is long overdue to be overturned, which is you shouldn't wear white after Labor Day. <laughs> I think people should be able to wear white all year round. White is a fantastic color. I don't think anyone should limit themselves. Uh, also, how are you going to not wear white after Labor Day and then still dress up as a ghost for Halloween? You know? Well, and also this winter white, right? And that's what I'm saying. I'm in support of that. I'm in strong support of that. Yeah. And it also seemed weird to me that it's a, it's a rule that you're not supposed to wear white after Labor Day, but I've never heard the rule when it's okay to start again. That's true. Yeah, when when can you wear white again? It's just like you like if you're alive, if you're a baby, you can wear white up until the first Labor Day, and then you're done for life. I don't like that. <laughs> what is the origin of that white after Labor Day? Do you know? I feel like just someone probably said it. Vogue, the magazine or the song? That didn't sound like the tone of an educated guest. That just sounded no. like a guest. <laughs> no, that was yeah. just the name of a magazine. Oh. <laughs> In style, seventeen spin tiger beat guns and ammo. <laughs> 
So yeah, I think that's fair. I think you should be able to wear white. Alright, so white. we're all in support, wearing white. Yeah. Alright. Sweet. As none of us are actually wearing any white, so... I don't own any white. I've got a white unicorn on my shirt. Good. Alright. Vlad, is there anything you want to get up your chest? Anything I'm you can't not stop a, complaining about? I'm not the complaining kind of guy. No, that's right. alright. Oh, and you've lived in Soviet Russia. You have a different level. <laughs> <laughs> a different level of... Um... Everything is an improvement. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so thank you for listening to this great podcast this week. I'm Jared. I'm Lova. Tim. And I'm Vlad. Thank you. Thank you, and we'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>